0: Sorry, that was a little loud. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome back to By Amara. This is a weekly news show where I discuss contemporary events in the art and history fields. I'm your host and personal curator, Amara Andrew. The format for the show that I typically follow, but I just really haven't ever really (laughs) is something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. This week, we're talking about a 2,000-year-old sex toy, mythical ancient barbed wire, army our free museums, the way of the future, and the new home for David Bowie's tremendous archive. We have all that incoming. Oh my God, <laughs> this is quite a struggle. We have all that and more coming up on this episode of biomara. Let's get to it. Sorry, that was a little choppy. This is, as you can already tell, a very special episode of biomara if you are watching this. Um, but if not, I will talk about it in just one sec. First though, let's start with some ads. One of the primary businesses that I run uh, is called Maven by Amara. (laughs) shocking, I know. But kind of the whole point of it is to create engaging social media content for businesses, entrepreneurs, people like that. And within my primary business, I've actually had clients of mine be like, hey, I already created content before, like YouTube podcasts, whatever. Could you please like clip it up for me? Which is where vert.video comes from. That's V-E-R-T dot V-I-D-E-O. My partner, Jeff, and I were like, we need to help people do this, uh, like chop up their existing content because, you know, it's just kind of sitting there not really doing anything. So might as well help people out with that. And Vert is super, super simple to sign up for. Literally just go to our website, vert.video, sign up for a plan, and then that's basically it. And then we'll just start chopping up your content. There's a little bit more to it, but that's essentially it's just like boom, boom, done. So Vert allows you to take like I said, your existing long form content, so anything longer than like 60 seconds, and we can chop it down into easy digestible clips, then you can post it to social media, put it in email campaigns or so on and so forth. With vert.video, it'll keep your audience engaged in your social media and coming back week after week for more. So that's vert.vido, linked below in the description. Now on to the show. Oh, sorry that ended rather abruptly. My bad. Welcome to a very special episode of Biomara. Like I teased in the intro, uh, I this is definitely a very unique episode. If you are watching this, you can already kind of tell why. Uh, This is the last episode of Biomara in my twenties. What? (laughs) Yay! It's my birthday week. Uh, This Friday is going to be my thirtieth birthday. Uh, I can't believe the words that just came out of my mouth. 30 just sounds like such a foreign concept to me. Oh, and the reason why you could tell if you are watching this is because I have a giant happy birthday necklace on as well as some other uh, beaded ephemera necklaces. (laughs) It's very, very colorful for me. And yeah, just hearing me and 30 in the same sentence is weirding me out so much. Like, I've just kind of gotten used to being in my 20s even. I still think I'm like 17 or 18. It's so weird. So I guess I'm just trapped in being a teenager. So yeah, this this Friday is my 30th birthday. I am, I guess, just in shock that I'm that old already. I don't think of myself as being that old. So, And I know it's not like old. People are going to be like, oh, you're still a baby. But it just, it freaks me out mentally. I don't know. I'm kind of having a hopefully just a quarter life crisis, but we'll find out. (laughs) I guess that would make me 120. Anyway, so yeah, when this episode comes out this Friday, March 3rd, my 30th birthday, Ah, exciting and terrifying. We're actually doing something really fun for my 30th to celebrate because it's your dirty 30. And I personally have never really enjoyed celebrating my birthday that much. uh, But my Boyfriend Jeff has made it very tolerable, so thank you. Also, my best friend Jackie, growing up too, also made it very tolerable, so thank you as well. You probably don't watch this, and I don't blame you. So Jeff and I are going to have a really fun time for my 30th birthday. We're actually leaving relatively soon, so I got I got a lot to do today, so I'm going to try to keep this episode rather brief. Uh, we are going to Las Vegas. I've only been once before. I don't know why I said Las Vegas. <laughs> it's like fucking Vegas. You could just call it Vegas. Vegas. So we are going to Vegas to celebrate. That should be very interesting because neither of us drink, neither of us gamble. We don't smoke, like we don't do anything that's like a quintessential Vegas kind of thing. So uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll have fun. We'll go to shows and stuff like that. And I'll be vlogging the whole thing, of course, because everybody vlogs everything nowadays. But I'll be sharing little snippets and stuff on all my socials and on YouTube. So if you care, you can check that out. And After that, though, then we're going to drive over to Malibu Topanga Canyon area for a couple days. So the next episode of Biomara is going to be on location. So we'll see where that is and what that means. (laughs) So yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be like rager in Vegas with our version of a rager, which is like not a rager. And then like detox and kind of hang out in Topanga Canyon. So Yeah, I don't know. It'll be really fun. It'll definitely be a novel way to spend my birthday. We're normally in Miami actually for my birthday, but we were just in Miami in January. We're doing something a little different just to make like it's like 30, like you're an adult. You're almost dead. Ah. (laughs) No, it'll be fun. It'll be very fun. So I'm very excited. Also, normally in part of the show, I do updates for previous episodes. I don't have any actually currently. Um, So we are just going to get straight into the show. So first I'm going to take off my necklaces and then into the show. So we are starting off the show with a very, very interesting story. (laughs) I was actually really excited to see this one, so I hope you are too. A study was published in the journal Antiquity. The authors of this study are revisiting an object that was found in 1992 in an ancient Roman fort in Northumberland. The object in question question was originally cataloged as a sewing device, which is hilarious when you hear what I'm about to say, which you've already obviously can probably guess. It was originally cataloged as a sewing device, <laughs> which makes no sense. But the authors in the article are now positing a series of new theories, including that this might be a 2000 year old sex toy. I just don't understand where you get sewing device. Mick, whatever. If you you should really watch this or at least look it up because I'll have a photo up. It clearly does not look like a sewing device. As someone who sews, I I don't know, whatever. It's ancient and whatever. I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. So this disembodied phallus is made of wood. No pun intended. (laughs) Uh, It's made of young ash roundwood and it measures six inches long. Experts though believe it was actually originally larger than that because wood tends to shrink and warp uh, the older it gets. (laughs) There's so many puns and innuendos in this. I'm going to try to be good and not be not be too dirty, but I am a very, I'm like a 10 year old boy and a dirty old man wrapped up into one. So just, I'm going to, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to try to keep it (laughs) PG-ish. Okay. So like I was saying, experts though believe that this is actually bigger just because wood does shrink and change as it gets older. Because of that, it's even more amazing when ancient wooden objects exist because it's like, almost impossible like it's very rare that they actually survive so it's cool to have this and especially something as unique as this the object has a wide cylindrical base and it tapers down to a narrow shaft and also has a glance (laughs) so it's very clearly a wiener. I'm just going to call it a wiener. I know some people gave me shit in the comments on another one of my videos because I kept saying wiener. I just find wiener a funny word. Wiener, wiener, wiener. And so it it looks like it has like a base to it, like a pretty sturdy base. And then it turns into a wiener. Also a side note, while I was reading their study in in the actual journal, I just love academies description, like academics. It's called like academies because it's like not even written in like any language. It's just like But I love when academics try to describe sex, genitals, anything kind of remotely like describing things in a clinical manner is always so funny to me because like, you know, these academics are probably like, oh, my God, I have to write glands instead of like the head. I don't know. I'm trying to not be too (laughs) too crass, but I just find it very funny. Anyway, moving on. There's also really strong evidence on the actual piece how you can see how it was created. So it looks like it was like a blade or a knife or something that we use, was used to like shave away uh, to turn it into this wiener. And it was found in a ditch along with shoes, various accessories, and a couple other random things like leather offcuts and worked antler and stuff like that. So while one theory is that this was actually used as a sex toy, there are actually two other theories that are posited in this study. One of them includes that this actually isn't like a... a uh, sex toy at all, but it's a pestle that was used. Pestle, pestle, pestle. I believe a pestle that could have been used to grind up other things, not just your genitals. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm sorry. I stop. It would have actually been used. I'm not gonna make too many hand gestures, also, because this could turn really weird. But essentially, like the base of it, that's the round cylindrical base, could have been used to grind up like medicines, plants, herbs, things like that. The shape of it, though, as a wiener, would have had perceived magical properties because pal phalluses had a lot of significance in ancient Rome and a lot of various other cultures as well. But for the purposes of this, we're talking about ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, the divine phallus, which I thought was a hilarious wording, was used to invoke uh, masculine generative power and could also provide good fortune and protection. However, something does negate this theory, though. There are no obvious... I keep making hand gestures. I need to stop. There are no obvious signs of discoloration or other random materials in the bottom part of it that would signify that this is a pestle. The theory is kind of ruled out for now. It's not entirely ruled out, but more analysis needs to be done on the on the actual wood. The other theory is that this actually could have been part of a herm. So, herms were all throughout the Greco-Roman world and they're basically like a type of sculpture. Um, I think typically made of like stone material and it was a sculpture that was often positioned near a doorway or like outside or something. um so that passersby could touch one to receive protection. So it's like a weird like monolith. It's like a rectangle, but with a head on top and there there are a wide variety of different herms and everything. This isn't just like this is all it looks like, but uh what this would possibly have been located in is like a rectangular monolith with like a a beautifully carved head on top and then like genitalia at the bottom, sometimes with a full torso, sometimes not. So it's a very interesting looking piece of sculpture sometimes on these herbs the phallus like the genitalia would already be carved into the stone or out of the stone however it looked but sometimes also they had wooden insertions i'm trying to not do hand gestures they would have these wooden additions that were inserted into the herm so then it was uh you could replace it i guess but people were supposed to touch it and like that would leave markings and stuff so there are a couple things though that suggest that this theory actually might not be uh Super valid for this specific item just because the weathering of the wood doesn't look like it was placed outside for extended periods of time because it would definitely show that kind of wear and tear, um, whether from like the sun or just various other weather, climate kind of things. Also, it doesn't look like it could actually fit securely into the stone monolith just from the base of it. It would also have been like inserted and (laughs) deserted I guess I don't know the proper word there don't appear to be markings on the actual phallus to show that it was like inserted into the stone monolith and then taken out so that theory is also kind of (laughs) like tiny fart why am I having trouble (laughs) there's still a lot more research to be done but currently that theory also doesn't hold up as well Um, so with all these in mind Toward the end of their paper, it looks like the authors and the researchers actually tend to believe that this is most likely a sex toy, especially when they were looking at the points of wear. So it looks like most of the wear were in like two specific spots on the side and like a couple others, but mostly on the side. And then also at the very tip of it, which could suggest that it was used for clitoral stimulation or other kinds of stimulation and things like that. So it may not have actually been like inserted uh, into anybody but it most likely was just used like for fun so if this sex toy theory is accepted by the academic community and if all the research also points to this actually being a sex toy this will be the first known example of a wood phallus recovered from the ancient roman world which is just fascinating also if you're curious at all just to wrap up this story i was just like well what's the oldest sex toy the oldest sex toy that has been found that I could find found that I could find appears to be an almost 30,000 year old silt stone phallus that allegedly doubled as a tool to ignite fires. So igniting multiple types of fires. <laughs> I love, I had to, it was my last bad joke of this segment. Probably I love the multi-purpose nature of that. And I just think that's so fun. It's like, well, yeah, this could, <laughs> this can, uh, You can use it for chopping firewood, you could use it for starting a fire, and then you could use it to ignite your own personal fire. So anyway, I just thought that was fun. So on to the next story. So for our next story, we are still sticking around ancient Rome for yet. More wood, but for a very different type of reason. For the first time in recorded history, archaeologists have discovered well-preserved sharpened wooden stakes that were used to deter attacks from enemies. This is actually really huge for a variety of reasons, um, which I'll get into in just a second. So it looks like these stakes, it was kind of difficult to understand because it they look like they would have appeared either on top of a fence, so kind of like ancient barbed wire in a way, but then they also seem like they were just in a ditch. I'm not quite too sure, so they were either on a fence or in a ditch. I'm just being very honest. I was not able to figure it out, so could have been either or. The entire area where these sticks were found was actually an ancient Roman military camp in Germany that dates back to the 1st century CE. Why the hell was this in Germany? You'll find out in a second. Until their rediscovery, they kind of had like a mythical vibe to them. Uh, apparently, a lot of, not a lot, but apparently some people from the ancient world, including Julius Caesar, had written about these stakes existing. But again, because they're wood, it's like almost, it's not entirely impossible, but it's like almost impossible that these things would have survived to now um, to be found. But none had ever been found until now. Excavations began on this site when a local hunter noticed faint markings and differences in color on the ground, so he could see that there were, like, some of the grass looked a little different, and it actually had, like, a clear shape to it, where it was like, okay, this looks a little different. Like, what is this? It turns out that this was because of the remnants of what the ancient Romans had dug. From what researchers can tell already, the entire Roman military camp that existed on this site was about 20 acres and had about 40 wooden towers at its peak. So it was pretty sizable. So like I teased just before, what was the purpose of the ancient Romans and of the Romans in this part of Germany? And why are they like, what's with all the stakes? What's with all this? Like, what is this? They had a huge investment in this area to mine silver. So because of this, then they would need defenses in place just in case like people tried to raid their stores or whatever. Uh, But further research needs to be done in order to like solidify this theory. It's just a theory right now, just a working theory, but it seems pretty probable to me. I don't know. I'm not I'm not there. In addition to this, there was also a smaller military camp made of wood found about two kilometers or a little over a mile away. Researchers, though, believe that this actually wasn't a profitable endeavor because they essentially just abandoned the site um, and just closed up shop silver though was eventually found in the area but not until 1897 some of the researchers also said that if the romans had kept digging even just like a little bit more into the ground they would have found silver but i mean i don't know maybe there's there's there has to be a lot more to it uh in this story just because i don't feel like they specifically would have just abandoned everything but i don't know so i guess the moral of that story is never give up (laughs) Everybody loves free shit, especially museum admission. One of the primary barriers into museums that, you know, museum professionals have figured out and studies have been done and blah, blah, blah. Like, obviously, in addition to not having flexible night and weekend hours is admission. It can be really fucking expensive to go to these different places, especially if you have like two, three, five, ten, twenty 10, 20 different people in your family. Like, it's very prohibitive. Prohibitive. <laughs> So it can be very prohibitive to people to be able to attend these places and share it with the people that they love. So because of that, the ACMA, the Orange County Museum of Art, when it opened its newest building, so they've been around, but they opened a new building in October 2022. So they wanted to start doing this free admission for 10 years. Long fucking time to commit to something. But um, I, I think this is a really fascinating, I love the idea of it, but We're going to talk about some of the pros and cons. So far, which is amazing, the ACMA has pulled the biggest audience in their museum's history. They've had more visitors in the last three months than they used to see over a four-year period. So during these three months, they had 92,000 people show up to the museum. And it's even cooler because a lot of these people were repeat people. Uh, Like throughout the week, they would come back, which is amazing. They'd either be there, I guess, allegedly to... uh, What was it? To like take different classes uh, that they offered, like yoga or art classes, um, eat in the different areas or just hang out. Like, I think that's so awesome. Like that is a really cool thing to turn museums into community spaces instead of just like uh, how they've always been kind of like the ivory tower where it's like, well, no, you can't have access because you either can't afford it or you can only come on our weekend hours when 5 billion other people are here. Um, It's always been a big issue. And people have written about this since like the 19th century as well. And this isn't just a trend in SoCal, but I'm specifically talking about SoCal museums just because we're talking about the Orange County Museum of Art. Uh, But a lot of different SoCal museums have actually been free institutions. So like the Getty, for instance, even though you have to pay for parking, parking can be a little expensive. Um, When we went I was actually surprised. I think it was like 30 bucks or 35 or something. I don't really remember. So the Getty's free, but you have to pay for parking. The Broad is also free, uh, which is in downtown LA. And it's it's a really beautiful building. You just have to reserve tickets ahead of time. I think also the Mocha they just said went free in 2022, which that was one of my favorite museums I've ever been to. It's it's just this trend that is building and building and building, which there can also be a downside to that, which I said we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. So why make a museum free then? You- You may be asking by this point if you are. If not, that's totally fine. But that's what we're going to talk about right now. So one primary reason, like I teased earlier, is to increase the diversity of museum goers. So it's people who may not have the funds for whatever different reason to not be able to access the museum. I just was thinking about this too. Hopefully they can actually like change the hours as well so then it's more accommodating to people. Maybe they're open until eight most nights or something, because then maybe you can go or whatever. And the broad has actually the broad museum has actually seen how uh, this diversity is playing out within museum goers and their attendance. They've seen a slight raise in people of color. And a slight raise in people under 45 who are attending the museum and attending more times as well, like I said. Some directors of the museums that I also noted are like, cool, great. Now we have a free admission and now we're seeing a diversity of people. You also have to make sure you have a diversity in your collections also just to show representation and make people feel included and welcome in the museum. That also extends to all of the staff as well. The broad, I know, prides themselves on having kind of like a casual, uh, more approachable sort of vibe to it versus just like no you can't talk to anybody. Um so I I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that just because I don't know like more people should want to go to museums and more people should like feel welcome to be able to go to a museum instead of just being like no like we don't want you. Like where's the fun in that? I don't know. Whatever. That's just me. Hippie dippy. I love 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 this idea of having free museums, free institution, free learning like it is so great. But where does the funding come from? That is like a museum's kryptonite funding 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 that is all you hear if you are interested in working in a museum field is just there's no funding normally museums get a lot like there are a bunch of different places where museums can get their funding but a lot of it is from ticket sales obviously um and surprisingly memberships as well or maybe not surprisingly so like if you're if your membership is ever going up uh like for renewal at a museum You'll get a billion different emails, cards, like, not text. I was about to say text. I <laughs> have phone calls. But you'll get a lot of different notifications of like, hey, your, your membership's about to be up. Don't you want to like keep going? Uh, because that's a, a stable source of income for the museum. And if you think about they have 100, 205 billion different people donating money to the museum, essentially, it's like a donation. And in return, you get free entry into the museum. That's a lot of money that's just gone. So where the hell do you get the rest of it? Why do you get this money? Like, where do you recoup it? It could be from cafes on site, uh, the gift shop, all these different classes and things like that. Also, it can be from private donors or public donors, but mostly just donors. (laughs) That can be very stressful for an institution to try to get these donations because you constantly have to, I mean, that is a tremendous, tremendous job. And especially trying to get money from people is like, it's insane. There are a lot of people who are really lovely and they want to donate to the arts and I I, you are wonderful. It's very difficult though, trying to get people to give money to your institution and especially enough to be able to cover your costs. That's a really big issue. So that is one kind of downside of this initiative is where does the money come from just like with anything like you you do have to think about that unfortunately also other institutions nearby uh like the LACMA I believe and then just around the country are kind of starting to feel this pressure of well we should also have free admission to the museum but how do we do that not only is funding a big issue like I just talked about but also it's kind of like Once you turn your institution free, you kind of can't go back from that. It's like it's kind of just like, well, no, once we start this, like this is kind of it for the future. You can always walk it back just like with most things in life, but it becomes increasingly difficult once you do make something free uh, for everybody. So that's just something that they need to figure out and plan out. Um, I would love if the Art Institute was free, but I also like being able to give my membership money just because I don't know. I really like supporting them. Um, I have a couple other memberships to different institutions like around the country and I just I don't know. I like supporting them at the end of the day. So if they do make free admission, they should still obviously have like donations and stuff, which of course they will. So maybe that could be an option. So I guess at the end of the day, museum directors and leaders just have to think about, you know, what's the goal of your institution? Is it to I mean, obviously you want to have enough attendance and you want to have people showing up to your museum, but then how are you going to do that? And then also you have you have to balance the two, like attendance and then budget. Like those are the main things of a museum. That's like the heart of it. That's why all these museums that charge admission have all these like blockbuster exhibitions because then either they can charge an additional fee on top of regular general admission or then it's just like included in the general admission. But it, it would increase... Attendance into the institution. So it's just something to think about. It's kind of like, should a museum then almost kind of be like a library in a way where it's f- free ish? I know you pay with your tax dollars and whatever, but it's just an interesting kind of philosophical thing. Because then also I saw, I was trying to read a couple different articles about the pros and cons of it. And uh, someone was pointing out, well, it doesn't seem as exclusive anymore. And then it could devalue the artworks, which I was like, what are you talking about? I I understand it from a logical point of view, but also I think the artwork still has value. It's just a different type of value. Maybe not necessarily monetary and not everything has to be about money. So I don't know. TLDR at the end of the day, I guess we'll see where the future of this free museum thing goes. I really hope it can be something in the future, but again, institutions really have to think about what's the future? Like how are we going to be able to afford all of this cuz There are a lot of expenses that go into running a museum. So anyway, uh, that was just the story for this week. So just something to something to consider. So our final story this week, we are ending again talking about museums. This week, though, the Victoria and Albert Museum acquired the David Bowie Archive. If you've ever seen The Late Show with Craig Ferguson, I just think of him doing his David Bowie impression all the time, and I just die a little inside of happiness, of happiness. The David Bowie Archive. This is going to be amazing to see. Items that are included are handwritten lyrics for various different songs, which is amazing, Uh, personal letters, music, museum, (laughs) musical instruments that David Bowie owned, sheet music, photos, film, music videos, set design, album artwork, awards, and the ultimate prize, costumes. Some of the costumes that are going to be included are some of his most famous costumes, like the uh, Freddy Brady design jumpsuit. I love that name, by the way, Freddie Brady uh, design jumpsuit that made him Ziggy Stardust, as well as the uh, beautiful creations of Kansai Yamamoto. These are going to be phenomenal to see. I am curious how ha- I have a lot of questions just because I come from an archival background, so I know what needs to be done for the preservation and everything. So I'm curious how they're going to go about preserving things, but then also putting things on display because a lot of people are going to want to see this or if they're going to even put things on display. I don't know. That's for them to figure out. But I have a lot of a lot of curiosities and questions. So like I teased also, there are going to be handwritten lyrics to um, songs like Fame and Heroes and a couple others as well. Also, there are going to be Intimate Notebooks from throughout his life. So, or like uh journals, I guess more, so or like a diary almost. So, that'll be really interesting to see this kind of progression of his songwriting and thoughts and everything. I'm very excited for this. Um there are also going to be 70,000 photos and images. And what's even cooler, when I started reading this, I thought it was going to just be a private archival collection at the Victorian Albert Museum. This is actually going to be made public, like to the public, which is fantastic. I know a lot of uh, famous musicians and celebrities and things like that. I know a lot of their collections are publicly available, but this is this is going to be huge. This will be public by 2025 and it will be located at the David Bowie Center for the Study of Performing Arts, which is part of the VNA. So the building is not built yet. Um, it will be because they actually, the VNA got a got uh, a donation of 10 million pounds or about 12 million dollars from the Blavatnik Family Foundation, as well as another donation from the Warner Music Group. Side note, apparently Warner actually purchased Bowie's entire songwriting catalog last year, so I don't even know if maybe that'll be, I don't know. There's, it was like general and vague enough where it's like, maybe it would be, I don't know. That was just kind of like a footnote to the rest of this. So the VNA East Storehouse, it actually sounds like it's gonna be really, 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 really cool. It's gonna be a full service experience. Like this is like the dream for an archivist or a museum professional or like both. Like this is truly a dream, especially archival professionals when you hear how much space there is going to be. So it's a full service experience that's centered around the v stored collections. So not just David Bowie, but it's gonna be everybody. There'll be enough space for 250,000 objects. 350,000 books, and a 1,000 archival collections. Now, I know that space won't seem like a lot forever, especially the more you acquire and everything, but that is huge. That's like a dream. Oh my God. I, space is a huge issue for any museum, archive, library, whatever. So this is awesome. And it even gets better. It'll also house conservation labs, working stores, research and reading rooms, gallery space, display and performance spaces and creative studios all in one. I mean, this sounds like I need to move in. Like this sounds absolutely <laughs> amazing. That's basically all I know for now. I can hopefully have more updates. Hopefully I can even go in the future because that'd be freaking sweet. I know that the VNA, they also have collections from Vivian Lee, Peter Brook and the Glastonbury Music Festival, which is really cool. Um, so it'll just, it, their collection just seems to be getting cooler and cooler, I guess. So I am very excited to see what this even looks like when it's built. So that'll just be really freaking awesome. So anywho, that'll do it for this episode of Biomara. Again, this is my final episode of my 20s. I will be 30 the next time you see me and I'll look very old. But uh, so thank you so much for listening. I hope you like this episode. Uh, Please subscribe as well. And uh, again, Patreon exists. Don't feel any pressure whatsoever. Just want to let you know. Um, I love you all. I will see you in Malibu, I guess, next time. So I'm Amari Andrew. Never stop creating.